We begin by listening to some words from the book of Revelation. I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They crowd aloud in a cried sorry, they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And now let's come to God with our prayers of approach. Let us pray together. Life-giving God, we praise and thank you for the diversity of human life. For all the nations, tribes, peoples and languages that are part of our day and age. We praise and thank you that you have set us in families and communities, geographical or intentional, where we may learn to live and to love as part of your creation. We praise and thank you for the opportunities we have to show our faith in daily life as we copy the example of Jesus in loving and serving others. Forgiving God, we're sorry that we don't always live the way we feel we ought to as we fail to copy the example of Jesus, hurting other people and ourselves. We're sorry for the times that our communities and our families are places of selfishness, bitterness, envy or cruelty. We are sorry for the times when nation, race, tribe or language is the cause of division, violence, hatred or aggression. Reviving God, as your spirit convinces and convicts us of what is death-dealing, may she also refresh and renew us to be bringers of life and hope. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. We have two readings this morning. The first is a very familiar 23rd Psalm on page 548 of the Old Testament section. There's an ambiguity in the second, which I may be allowed to explain, comment on um, before we read. Um, It's the account in Acts on New Testament, page 160, of Peter and Lydda and Joppa. And um, takes me back to my boyhood in Berkeley Baptist Church, Huddersfield, where there were plenty of rooms, school rooms for classes, and also, in fact, for the unemployed men of the area in the 1930s uh, who engaged in various activities there. But 
One of the rooms was called the Dorcas Room. And I was intrigued by that name. I don't know when it was I discovered the reason, which is in our lesson. Um, I won't spoil it all if you don't know it, but the point is that Dorcas is the Greek translation, as it explains here, of Tabitha. Her name in Greek is Dorcas, meaning a deer. You see the ambiguity. This is the four-footed version. Let's begin with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He lets me rest in fields of green grass and leads me to quiet pools of fresh water. He gives me new strength. He guides me in the right paths, as he has promised. Even if I go through the deepest darkness, I will not be afraid, Lord, for you are with me. Your shepherd's rod and staff protect me. You prepare a banquet for me where all my enemies can see me. You welcome me as an honored guest and fill my cup to the brim. I know that your goodness and love will be with me all my life and your house will be my home as long as I live. Then Acts chapter 9 from verse 36. Peter travelled everywhere and on one occasion he went to visit God's people who lived in Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas who was paralysed and had not been able to get out of bed for eight years. I'm sorry, I've started a little too early. Verse 36. <laughs> In Joppa, there was a woman named Tabitha, who was a believer. Her name in Greek is Dorcas, meaning a deer. She spent all her time doing good and helping the poor. At that time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed and laid in a room upstairs. Joppa was not very far from Lydda, and when the believers in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him with the message, Please hurry and come to us. So Peter got ready and went with them. When he arrived, he was taken to the room upstairs where all the widows crowded around him, crying and showing him all the shirts and coats that Dorcas had made while she was alive. Peter put them all out of the room and knelt down and prayed. Then he turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter reached over and helped her to get up. Then he called all the believers, including the widows, and presented her alive to them. The news about this spread all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed on in Joppa for many days with a tanner of leather named 
Simon. Thank you, Graham. I did wonder whether you were going to steal my sermon at one point. But, uh, yes, dear and dear. Events over the last couple of weeks have led me, and I'm sure others here, to ponder the conflation of, or maybe the confusion between, public spectacle and the funerals of those whose deaths are somehow deemed to be newsworthy. Whether it is police officers killed in the line of duty, members of the infantry whose bodies are flown home from far-off places, whether it's media personalities, politicians, or even minor celebrities, there are photographers with long lenses and news reporters there to report these events to the general public. Irrespective of what we, or indeed the families involved, might really want. Whenever somebody in the public eye dies, the media machine very rapidly churns out a variety of eulogies and comments. And if that person happens to be quite old, they were probably written ages ago and kept on file, ready for the dates to be inserted. But expressions such as legacy are used to describe the impact the person is perceived to have had, the way they will be remembered for good or for ill. Usually, these people whose deaths are um, in the public eye, these celebrities and important or perceived as important people, will have a fairly substantial memorial stone, either on their grave or at a location associated with their life and work. And engraved onto that memorial is very often an epitaph. Um, I did a bit of Greek research uh, this week. Apparently, epitaph just means upon a tomb something engraved on a tomb, on a grave. And this endeavours to say, usually in a few words, something about a person. And so I thought it would be a way into where we're going, and hopefully not too um, heavy, maybe a little bit light-hearted, but also interesting to look at a few famous epitaphs this morning as we begin. And we'll see um, if you know who they are. Um, Some of them you'll be able to read, some of them might not be so easy, what their epitaphs were, and why they might have been their epitaphs. We're actually going to start off with a Jewish one, uh, Mel Blanc, Blanc, whose uh, epitaph was, that's all folks. Anybody know who he was? Yep. Yep. That's right. He was. He was a. a he was the. Vo- as she says he was the man of a thousand voices. He was the voice of Bugs Bunny and many other of the cartoons. And that's all, folks. Is how he is remembered. Okay. That one is maybe not quite so easy to read. Um, I'll tell you whose it is and see if you can tell me what the epitaph is and in what language it is expressed. This is um, Spike Milligan's grave. Okay, I told you I was ill, but in what language? Yeah, it's in Scottish Gaelic, I believe. Is it Irish Gaelic? I'm, I'm not sure if it's Irish Gaelic or Scots Gaelic. It didn't tell me that on the, um, the website, but yes, he said, I told you I was ill. Actually, he's not the first person to have used that as his epitaph, but 
Uh, he's unusual in having it not in um, English. Gone home. Yep, that's right. Yep. Um, the symbol here on the grave of Robert Baden-Powell and Olev Baden-Powell is the gone home symbol, which is used in tracking. So when you want to send your people home at the end of their track, you put that sign in chalk or whatever, and that means gone home. And I guess that's what they're saying to the world, that they have now gone home. Um, this is Emily Dickinson. Does anybody know who Emily Dickinson was? A poet, yeah, um, a Christian poet, um, apparently, and lots of people have, have studied her work. Um, and her epitaph is here, called back, which is not so dissimilar from the gone home, but it has a different emphasis, I think, um, as to who's doing the uh, prompting there. Okay. This one is, a, I believe, in Westminster Abbey. Brought by the faithful hands, by faithful hands, over land and sea, here lies David Livingstone, missionary, traveller, philanthropist. Born at Blantyre, Lanarkshire. And it's got um, various bits of scripture around the edge of it. So that's how the people who buried David Livingstone wanted to remember him, as a missionary, a traveller, and a philanthropist. Anybody know who that one is? Yeah, that's Mary Livingstone's grave. And it, if I found a photograph of the full thing. It's actually an enormous, great um, sandstone. I'm assuming it's sandstone at that colour um, thing. And it says of her, she was the beloved wife of Dr. Livingstone in humble hope of a joyful resurrection by her saviour, Jesus Christ. So that's very different, isn't it, from the epitaph that was given to her husband, and this is um, probably the world's most famous Baptist. This is Charles Haddon Spurgeon's gravestone. Um, it's not dissimilar, actually, from what it said about Mary Livingstone. He is waiting for the appearing of his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So something about these people's lives, somebody trying to sum up um, in a few words something about the life of the person who's buried there. Whatever we might think of the memorials or the people who they are commemorating, they actually invite us to think about an important question, perhaps one we'd prefer not to think about, but that is, what will our epitaph be? And we can think about that at an explicitly personal level, how will I be remembered? Or we can think of it at a corporate community level, what will people have to say about us as a church in a hundred years' time from now? One of the few certainties in life is death. Each one of us will one day reach the end of our lives, and all that will be left behind here will be memories and perceptions. That ought to be a sobering thought, and one that we take with us as we begin to ponder the reading we've heard this morning and how God might be speaking to us. Following the beginning of the great persecution of believers in Jesus, 
the Apostle Peter is travelling beyond the narrow confines of Jerusalem and Judea, and he arrives in Joppa, a place where there's already a well-established Christian work. In nearby Lydda, amongst other people, lives a widow called Tabitha, or Zorcus, and she is described specifically and explicitly as a disciple. This is a woman who has committed herself to learning the way of Jesus of Nazareth and who has expressed this faith in part at least through her wide-ranging social involvement. But tragedy has struck. The woman has become ill and now she's died. Her body has been ritually washed and placed in an upstairs room ahead of the funeral rites. Her neighbours and those who have benefited from her endeavours are distraught. They also are described as disciples, people committed to learning the way of Jesus, and who, when they hear that Peter is nearby, send for him. So what is Tabitha's legacy? What might her epitaph be? Peter arrives to be greeted by weeping widows who have loved her and benefited from her generosity. Look, they say, she made this robe and that cloak, this garment and those other clothes. This is how we will remember her for what she gave us and what she did for us. Whenever we wear the garments, we'll call her to mind. But we're so sad that she's gone. What can we do? How will we cope? And what happens when they wear out and we have no more the things she gave us? It seems, to me anyway, self-evident that Tabitha was very much loved by her community and inspired by her faith, had worked tirelessly to clothe these least of the members of the family of Jesus living in Lydda near Joppa. She would be remembered for a long time People would speak about her, perhaps in hushed tones, maybe even embroidering the tales as time went by. But a day would come when there was no one left who'd met her, nobody left who had slept warm at night in a cloak she'd made. A time would come when the last garment finally wore out and all that would remain would be the legacy the transformative impact of her life and witness. But now, in this moment of acute grief, they call upon Peter, the recognised head of the emergent Christian movement, and ask him to come. But to do what? What might they have expected him to do when they called for him? Given that Tabitha's body has been ceremonially washed and laid out in the upstairs room, suggests that perhaps he would be invited to pray for her soul, to carry out some kind of funeral rite on her behalf. For this woman they loved, this was the most profound and appropriate contribute they could think of as one of those that Jesus himself had entrusted to continue his work would come and offer the necessary prayers. And not just anyone, but Peter, the head one. I think it's fair to say that what happened next would not have been what they expected. 
certainly they would have believed that Christ had been resurrected. And they would have heard the accounts of the widow of Nain's son, of Lazarus, and probably also, and significantly, about Jairus' daughter. They would have known from childhood the accounts of Elijah and Elisha, each of whom are credited with resuscitating the sons of foreign women in dire circumstances. But they would also have known, beyond any shadow of doubt, that generally speaking, people who died stayed dead. They may have hoped against hope that Tabitha would return to them, but there is no way they could have presumed or assumed that this would be the outcome of Peter's visit. With echoes of the Jairus story, Peter sends everybody out of the room and is left alone with the lifeless Tabitha. He prays, commands her to get up just as Jesus had done to the 12-year-old girl. Now, precisely what happened behind those closed doors, we will never know. It is entirely possible that, like the Elijah and Elisha stories, some form of resuscitation was attempted and proved successful. It is plausible that Tabitha was in a deep coma or asleep from which she emerged naturally. It is even possible, as occasionally still happens today and is the nightmare of doctors and funeral directors, her heart spontaneously restarted. Whatever it was, in some way or other, people then and people now believed that God was involved. Our inability to explain the event doesn't negate it. Rather, it leaves it as something of a mystery. As the story ends, Tabitha is restored to her community, and the news of these events prompts others to consider and then discover their own faith in Christ. But what happens next? We don't hear anything else about the revived Tabitha or the people amongst whom she lived out her faith. Her final epitaph is not known to us. We can only imagine how she might have lived out the rest of her life. Perhaps going back to making clothes for her needy neighbours? Perhaps being some kind of local minor celebrity, at least for a while? But certainly, she had the opportunity to create a new legacy, shaped by her experience. But... Eventually, she would have died. The last clothes would have worn out and there was nobody left who knew her. And yet, nearly 2,000 years on, her story is still told. That is a pretty amazing legacy. I want this morning to invite you to engage in an exercise of the imagination which may be somewhat uncomfortable, but I think might allow each of us to experience at least some degree of revival in our own spiritual lives. Most people, most of the time, give little or no thought to their own death. 
I know it'll happen one day, way off into the future, but it's not something that occupies their minds in the wee small hours when sleep has flown. Sometimes circumstances might cut right through that complacency. Maybe somebody we know dies very suddenly and very tragically. Maybe we are faced with a life-threatening or a life-limiting medical diagnosis. Maybe the bottom falls out of our world due to redundancy, to relationship breakdown or other personal tragedy. It seems like the end of the world and we are on the edge. Our own mortality or at least our own dispensability are far too apparent. If you can... I invite you to try to enter the story of Tabitha and to do it in her place. So it is you lying on the bed in the upper room, carefully washed and prepared for burial. It's you over whom people are weeping and about you are saying things. Now, Countless sermons have been preached about where we're going to spend eternity, and we're not going to go that way at all today. What I would like to invite you to do today is for one minute in your imagination, put yourself in Tabitha's place in that room and try to listen to what people are saying. What is it they are saying or showing to Peter and others that exemplifies your faith and witness? What will your epitaph be? And we're going to take one minute to do that now. And now Peter reaches across gently. He takes your hand, calls you by name and tells you to get up. As you do so, As you blink into the light, what will you keep in your heart from this moment to shape your tomorrow? How will your life change as a result of this new life? How will this impact an epitaph yet to be written? And what about us as a church? If we suddenly ceased to be today, what would our epitaph be? What, I wonder, might it mean if we allow God's spirit to revive and refresh and renew us? How do we delight in our past without being constrained by it? How do we live in the present whilst learning from that story? And how do we face the uncertain future which will bring times of trial and even shadows as dark as death itself, trusting faithfully in the one whose death brings new life for all. The story of God's people is one in which we catch the merest glimpse of their lives and sometimes their deaths. We know almost nothing about them or the communities of which they were part. And yet their epitaph remains. We still tell their stories. We still delight in what they show us about ourselves and about God. Surely we pray that it may be so too, both with our personal stories of faith and that of our church.
It is our privilege now to come before God and address our prayers for others and for ourselves to him. Let us pray. Lord, we humbly come before you with prayers for ourselves and for others. We raise these prayers after a week in which we have seen the best and the worst in our public life. We saw a great stateswoman buried in an atmosphere mixed with hate and love. Love from her family and friends, hate from those who thought her policies had wronged them and blighted their lives. O breath of love, come breathe within us remembrance of the good done by this woman. Let it not be, as Shakespeare said of another, interred with her bones. Breathe forgiveness, we pray, into the hearts of those who bitterly opposed her actions, that they can let go of their enmity, no matter how justified, and leave it decaying in the grave so that they can move forward, cleansed, renewed, with hope for a better future. O breath of love, breathe within all politicians your lesson of compassion, that people are not mere statistics to be pushed around for economic effect, but living, feeling, brothers and sisters who are affected immeasurably by their actions and who will one day call them to account as we shall all be called to account before God's judgment seat. Lord, hear our prayer. We remember our brothers and sisters in America suffering from the twin blows of an industrial disaster which has killed and maimed so many leaving a town and people devastated with grief and a city reeling with the shock of a seemingly deliberate act of terror at a time of happiness and triumph, which has left them crying out to you, Why? 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 O breath of love, breathe on them your spirit of healing and comfort. In the courage of so many in that town and city, give them eyes to see renewal of their community, revival of their hopes that one day those who blindly use terror as a tool will come to realize that love for one another, caring for one another, whether they be kinfolk or stranger, is stronger than any weapon and can change the world more effectively into a better place with justice and equality for all. Lord, hear our prayer. We give thanks for the selflessness of the coach driver who sacrificed his life to save his passengers. We are sure he went straight to the loving arms of the one who understood such sacrifice most intimately, for he himself had suffered to take away our sins and make of death a doorway into a new existence. The one 
whose life-affirming ordeal we have so recently celebrated at Easter, our Lord Jesus Christ. O breath of love, breathe your tender strength of endurance on those this courageous coach driver left behind and assure them his legacy is remembered on earth and in heaven. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for those in China, bewildered and terrified in the recent earthquake. The world you made for us is a marvellous place with many wonders and many perils. Hold fast to the survivors in their fear. Help them to get through this ordeal and help those people, oh, so many of them, who selflessly risk their lives in rushing to aid the victims of such natural disasters. Who can doubt that you have breathed your love and compassion on such heroes? Strengthen them in their endeavours. Lord, hear our prayer. Lastly, Lord, we pray for those in our immediate community who desperately need your reviving, renewing breath of love to help them surmount the problems in their lives, whether they be of sickness or sadness for themselves or others dear, or worry over material problems for themselves or others dear. For those whose spiritual life is at a low ebb, give them remembrance of the apostles who trembled and thought their call to spread the good news was silenced with the death of their Lord and then found in his resurrection the restorative power to go out and spread your lessons of revival, renewal, forgiveness and above all, love. Lord, breathe on us. Hear our prayer. Amen. God of Peter, God of Tabitha, God of David and Mary Livingston, God of then, God of now, as we leave this place to continue our journeys of faith, may we do so confident of your presence to guide, direct and accompany us this day and every day. Mm -hmm.